Okay. Uh, we are, as I was just mentioning in prayer, uh, at the uh, end of Romans chapter 11, which is uh, really kind of the, uh, the, the end of what we typically think of as the theological section of Romans. Uh, Romans 1 through 11 uh, just has a lot of truths about God, about salvation, about us, uh, things that, uh, uh, that we do need to understand. Uh, and uh, so Paul goes into those things in depth in the first 11 chapters. And then next week, as we start chapter 12, of course, we shift into uh, what we, I guess we oftentimes think of as more the, the practical aspect or the outworking aspect of all that theology we've been studying. And uh, so we'll explore that uh, as we get to it. But we're going to, as we get into chapters 12 and on, Paul gets, uh, <clears throat> as uh, one line I used to hear when I was growing up, uh, one kid said to his grandpa after he'd heard him, or one, so it wasn't a kid, it was somebody else said to, his, said to a guy when he was preaching, he says, now you've you quit preaching and you've gone to meddling. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember that line a lot. And when I get to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul quits his preaching and he goes to meddling, you know. And uh, so uh, there'll be a lot of practical applications when we get to those chapters. You no, know, Rick, I must point out, I've just liked that joke for many, many years because I think if God isn't allowed to meddle, then and who are we to say such a thing? Yeah. You know, that's exactly the job of a preacher is to preach the word. Yes. Not meddling. Yes. So I really think that joke. Well, well, okay. <laughs> so next week I'm going to use that joke again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the reality is, the reason it's a joke is because it is so facetious, you know, and uh, that that is the reality of what Scripture does. It meddles in our lives. So, but at any rate, I appreciate your uh, comment. So, uh, so at any rate, last week we were looking at, oh, verses 26 or 28 or so down through verse 32. And uh, just briefly, let's kind of review those things. Uh, and then we'll pick it up with our study in verse 33. But uh, I, uh, I, I do want to kind of go back and review some of the things we've seen all the way through the last three chapters. But I'll do that after we after we look at uh, at uh, after we think about what we talked about last week. So let's read beginning in verse 25. He says, "For I do not want you, brethren, to be unformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a Cardinal hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come out of, come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, 
they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that He may show mercy to all. For the great, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Or that could read, as we'll see here in a few minutes, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay? Well, glancing down at those verses, particularly verses uh, uh, 20, uh, 26 through 32, what are some of the things you remember that we talked about last week? He talked about uh, what was meant by all Israel. Okay. Which was? Um, it turns out it's not Okay. But it's a significant number that it really represents all Israel. Okay, okay. And uh, it will be such that when you think of the Jews after that time, we will think of them in terms of being saved. Yes, 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 yes. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Think about that. That'll be pretty cool. Okay, what else? Talk about in the verse that he quotes, it used to say, will come to Zion, and that says, will come from Zion. Okay. Um, so we differentiated that one was the first coming and one is the second coming. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. So Paul is emphasizing this uh, the, uh, the uh, ultimate coming of Christ when he's speaking of Christ coming out of Zion, because the reference here, as Paul is using the term. Here, apparently, he has in mind the idea we get in, for example, there at the end of Hebrews, where Zion is representative of heaven. So the idea is the deliverer coming out of heaven. So that emphasizes what about this deliverer? If he's coming out of heaven. His divinity, okay? So we understand that this is a reference, of course, uh, or an allusion to the divinity of Christ. The divinity of the deliverer. Okay. What did we learn last week about this spiritual restoration or this spiritual renewal of Israel? How does that take place? Remember, we talked a little bit about how some uh, some Christians following the Holocaust in the middle of the last century begin to view this idea of Israel's spiritual renewal. And, uh, and we suggested that, that uh, although the, the, the reasons that led to that kind of view of, of Israel's renewal are understandable, they are nevertheless you know, in error as we see here in Romans chapter 11. So what, what, is it, what is it that prompts, according to this passage, 
Israel's spiritual renewal? Or what constitutes that renewal? Is it simply a return to uh, the practice of Old Testament law? Okay, it's belief in Christ. He makes it very clear. It has to do with the coming of the divine deliverer. It has to come, has to do with their response to this deliverer, this response to the Messiah. So clearly, uh, however this spiritual renewal of Israel, which is still future, however this occurs, it's going to occur in conjunction with their faith in and their turning to the deliverer and their response to the deliverer, their response to Jesus. <clears throat> so the idea that developed uh, among some following the Holocaust in because the Holocaust was such a horrific event, such a terrible event, and because uh, particularly the German church in particular had had uh, had been uh, uh, complicit in the Holocaust, there was there was a sense of of a uh, sense of uh, apology. <laughs> That, that, that the church had gone overboard in its response to Israel. And so it was erroneous for the church to expect that, that Jews would eventually become Christians in the sense that we think of today. And, and as understandable as that reaction is, it still, uh, it still obscures what the Scripture clearly teaches, which is that for the Jews to be saved, they need to embrace their Messiah who we understand very clearly is Jesus. And so that's the thing that Paul is teaching us here is that this spiritual renewal of Israel does not, does not involve their going back to the law or going back to the temple worship services or things like that, going back to what we call the, the, uh, the cultic practice, not cultic in a negative sense, but cultic in a religious or spiritual sense, uh, going back to the cultic practices of Israel. It doesn't involve that, but it involves rather their their embracing of the Christ. Anything else from last week before we go on? Okay. And what did we say about that? Okay. Okay. And in reality, what we're saying is that hardening can be both. In other words, a, a, given, a given hardening can be both judicial in the life of the person who's hardened and can be salvific in the life of the person who's hardened, okay? As well as being salvific in the lives of others. So, so that's one of the things that we learned about hardening. We learned that early back in chapter 9. We've had to keep reminding ourselves that hardening is both, both judicial and salvific. There's something else. We hadn't talked about it uh, since Romans chapter 9. But it'll come up again today in our lesson today, I expect. And, and, and that is the question of what was the hardening? Because in Romans chapter 9, he talks about Pharaoh. And he uses Pharaoh, remember, as an example of this hardening process that God in his, in his sovereignty had chosen to harden, uh, harden Pharaoh. And we learn some things about what that hardening was when he hardened Pharaoh. You remember... Uh, do you remember what he's what he's talking about there when he's talking about in, in Exodus about hardening Pharaoh? He wasn't hardening him against belief in Jesus. He was hardening him against his letting the people go. So it was hardening of his own heart and the tendency it was going. He just allowed it to progress. 
Okay, he allowed it to progress, but he allowed it to progress in spite of what? What was going on in the story in Exodus at the point when God told Pharaoh, and remember, we also discover this, that Pharaoh is simply representative of all the people of Egypt. So when he's talking about hardening Pharaoh, he's not just talking about hardening Pharaoh. He's talking about hardening all the Egyptians. Okay, But what was going on at that point when God said that he was going to harden them? All the miracles. All the, yeah, all the plagues were going on. Okay, And we're about halfway through the plagues. And God says to Pharaoh, representing all the Egyptians, it's clear in the story in Exodus that he stands as a representative for all the people. So he's hardening all of the Egyptians. And what God is saying is that he's strengthening them to continue their resistance in spite of the coming plagues. So there's still about four more plagues left for them to endure. And rather than them being overcome or overwhelmed by these plagues and destroyed by them, God is strengthening them to endure those plagues. So it's not that, that God was doing, in, in Exodus, it's not that God was doing something in Pharaoh's heart that made Pharaoh's heart more sinful. God wasn't inciting sin in Pharaoh. God was enabling Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians to survive the plagues that were coming down on them, the judgment that was coming down on them. Okay? And for what purpose did God do that? Why was it important to God to keep the Egyptians alive through these plagues? Rather than for them to be overwhelmed by them. To demonstrate His glory to all the world. And the classic example, of course, we see of that at work is the life of Rahab the harlot who gets saved as a result of what happened in Egypt. Okay, so just keep those things in mind. Well, so, so let's go back and let's just kind of think our way through again Romans 9 through 11. Okay, Early in Romans chapter 9, Paul has... Asked, raised the question, because he knows people are asking this question. He raised the question, has God's word failed? This is the question. Has God's word failed? And, and it comes up because he's promised us in the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter, he's promised us that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And But then, of course, to the Jew who's hearing Paul speak, the question comes up, well, what about us? You're saying God's word to us has failed, have you not? And uh, has it not? And Paul says, well, no, that's not what I'm saying. And he sets out in Romans 9 through 11 to explain how even though we have all these promises made to Israel and now they all seem to be abrogated, they all seem to have been, you know, forgotten or dismissed or invalidated in some way, God said, Paul says, even though that's the way it appears, that's not what's happened. God's Word has not failed. And then he begins to explain to us how if that, that God has this, because He is God, because He is sovereign, He has the prerogative, He has the, 
He has the right as a sovereign God to harden whomever He wills and to show mercy to whomever He wills. And so, so he's, he's, remember, he's, he's dealing with the question, has God's word for Israel failed? But then he goes, immediately goes into this discussion about, well, God can, you know, this is, this is God we're talking about and God can do what He wants to do. He's sovereign, right? And so if God wants to harden some, he can harden them. And if he wants to show mercy to some, he can show mercy. Now, he doesn't explicitly say there in Romans 9 <coughs> that he hardened Israel, but he does say it later. So that's clearly what he's saying. In Romans 9, he's saying what's happened here, although from our perspective, it looks like God's word has failed. What's happening here is there's a process going on and that, and that God has hardened Israel. And he uses as his example of this principle of God's sovereign choice in hardening some and showing mercy to others, and his, his, his illustration of hardening, what illustration does he use? Now, this shouldn't be a hard question for you to answer because we were just talking about it. Pharaoh, okay? Pharaoh. And so, is Pharaoh a Jew? He's not, is he? So, it's interesting to me that the first example that Paul uses of hardening is not the Jews, although that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the hardening of the Jews. But his illustration of God having this right to harden, if he chooses to harden, his illustration is a Gentile man who stands, as we just said, representative of the whole nation, the whole, the whole people of the Egyptians. Okay, So he uses the Egyptians as an illustration of hardening before he moves on to talk about hardening Israel. So, so we're starting to see this picture of God and he's up here and he's this big God and if he wants to harden, he can harden the Gentiles and he can harden the Jews. Okay? And, uh, and so this is the picture that we get in, in chapter 9 that, that God is this is this great God and He makes these choices and He has these rights and He has these prerogatives. And, and so by the time we get well into chapter 9, we start to ask ourselves the question, you know, if, we, if we're honest, we might start to ask ourselves the question, well, does God get to do this just because He's the biggest bully on the block? You know, is this a question of might makes right? Okay? God's sovereign. God's omnipotent. God can do whatever He wants to do because He's God. And so He can harden some and He can show mercy to others. And that's just the way it is. Well, if we stopped in Romans 9, that might be the conclusion we reached. That, well, God's just the biggest bully on the block and He can do whatever He wants. And who are we to complain against it or who are we to object? He can just do that. Okay. Well, but He doesn't stop there. He goes on to chapter 10. Having said towards the end of chapter 9, well, but really, he said this whole thing about mercy, he says mercy is predicated on faith. So mercy comes on the basis of faith. And then he gets into chapter 10 and he begins to tell us that this gospel of faith and gospel of God's mercy is accessible to all. And so he makes a big thing in chapter 10 about the accessibility of the gospel to all. And so it becomes clearer then that, that 
this hardening that has happened to Israel has happened because of their refusal to believe. They have rejected Christ. They've rejected their Messiah. They've refused to believe. And in chapter 10, he says, no, he says, he says, you've got to understand that this mercy of God is easily accessible. It's available to all. And if the Gentiles are experiencing the mercy of God, it's because they're experiencing it on the basis of faith. And if the Jews are not experiencing the mercy of God, it's because they have refused to believe. And so we begin to get this picture in chapter 10 that the Gentiles are in, but the Jews still seem to be out. Yes, Bob. I just remember a very strong visual image you did with Hal and the stone and the brick. You know, where the Jews were holding... Oh, yes. Uh-huh. But they only had one hand, so they had to lay down oh, yes. the law to accept the gift. Yes, yes. Yeah, they're holding the law and they're offered the gift, but they 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 cannot receive the gift without laying down the law and they refuse to do that without relinquishing the law. And and so so by the time we get to the cha- end of chapter ten, we still have the problem we began with. Has God's word failed for the Jews? Now we see by the end of chapter 10 that the Gentiles are included. They're included on the basis of faith, but we still have this problem with the Jews. But then we get into chapter 11. And God says, well, I'm not done with the Jews yet. <laughs> it's not all over with the Jews. Okay. And one of the evidences that it's not all over with the Jews is this thing about the remnant. And we discover that there still is this remnant. And this remnant is indicative of the fact that God is not yet finished with the Jews, although it appears to our minds and to our eyes that He is. And as we look back over the last 2,000 years of history, we go, well, clearly God has just written them off. But Paul says, no. Look at the remnant. This is an indication that God has not written them off. And then he begins to explain to us how God is going to use the mercy shown to the Gentiles to provoke jealousy in the Jews. Now, when he says, you know, we always think of jealousy as a negative, we always, or most always think of jealousy as a negative thing, but, but, but Paul is not using it in the negative light here, but rather he's saying, he's saying, that God is going to incite in them a desire for His mercies. As they witness the mercies of God in the Gentiles, they are going to have a desire, a jealousy for those mercies. <laughs> and that jealousy for the mercies of God they see upon, that given to us Gentiles is going to provoke in them a desire for those mercies and they will turn to Christ to receive those mercies. Okay? And so we discover then that Through this redemptive history, through what we call salvation history, what God did is originally, initially, He hardened the Gentiles in order that He might save the Jews. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are the example. So He hardened the Gentiles to save the Jews. Then He hardens the Jews to save the Gentiles. And He reaches His grand conclusion then of it all in verse 32 of chapter 11. So then, he says, God has shut up all in disobedience in order that he might show mercy to all. And as we saw last week, that phrase, he has shut up all in disobedience, is simply a reference to this idea of hardening. That God has hardened all. And indeed, that's true. Every one of us 
was hardened. And Paul uses here the word all rather than the word both. So although he has been talking in terms of classes, Israel and the Gentiles as groups, now when he reaches his grand conclusion, he doesn't use the word both, but he uses the word all. And when Paul uses the word all in Romans 9 through 11, he is typically using the word all to refer to either, as we saw earlier when he talks about all Israel, a vast majority of a class, so most of the individuals in a class, or every single individual in a class. So it seems like Paul there in verse 32 has now shifted his focus from this speaking about classes of people of Israel and the Gentiles to every single person. And God says he has shown mercy. He has shut up all on the sin in order that he may show mercy to all. And so what we discover as we've gone all the way through Romans 9 through 11, what we've discovered is this amazing thing that throughout salvation history, God has been working, hardening some, showing mercy to others and showing Mercy to the ones that were hardened and hardening the ones who were shown mercy and vice. And all this has been going on. It's been very confusing to us. But through it all, there has been one overriding purpose of God. And that was what? Showing mercy. Showing mercy. Showing mercy. mercy. I want to suggest to you that the dominant theme of Romans 9 through 11 is not the sovereignty of God. The dominant theme of Romans 9 through 11 is the mercy of God. And all that he's been doing in his sovereignty, he has been doing in order that he may show mercy. And it's all very confusing to us. It's all very bewildering to us. And so we are prompted to come to this grand conclusion that Paul reaches then in chapter 11 at the end when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be given back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is just overwhelmed by this knowledge. Paul's... Paul is just filled with praise and he writes these verses and they are written in the form of a hymn. I think Paul intended it as a hymn. A hymn of doxology, a hymn of praise to God in view of God's great mercy and the wisdom and the knowledge and the mind of God that is able to work throughout salvation history and throughout His creation and throughout all the machinations of human will and human actions and human choices and human decisions that God is able through all of that to accomplish this one beating passion He has which is to show mercy. 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 mercy. So, he begins in verse 33 and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And if you've got a New American, you'll notice the way it's written there is it's written uh, uh, so as to say that he's praising the depth of riches, uh, the depth of riches of wisdom 
and knowledge. Okay, and that's one way it can be translated. Uh, and that's the way it's translated New American. I think King James and IV translate it the same way. But the English Standard Version translates another way, and I really think that's really the preferable way. And in this case, what he's praising is the depth of riches, uh, wisdom, and knowledge. Okay? So, VGE, uh, uh, whatever. You know what I'm trying to write there. <laughs> Forgive my scribbling. Okay. So, in one case, he's praising the depth of riches of two things. In the other case, he's praising the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. Three different things, okay? And, and uh, it's kind of a technical argument, but I fall on this side. This is where I come down. So, that's how I'm going to represent it to you today. That what he's praising here is he's praising the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Okay? And, uh, and as we reflect on that, we think about that. One of the reasons, not the primary reason, but one of the reasons why I think this is what he's doing is because he's already talked several times in Romans about the riches of God. Okay? In Romans chapter 2, in verse 4, he talks about the riches of God's kindness and his patience. He warns us against thinking lightly. He says, would you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and his patience? And, and in, in the context, he's talking about God's the riches of God's kindness and patience as they lead to salvation. Okay. Uh, and then in, uh, in Romans chapter 9, uh, he, uh, he, talks about, uh, uh, he talks about the riches of glory that God has prepared for those who, uh, those who are His. And so, there's the riches of God's kindness... In Romans chapter 2, there's the riches of God's glory, which is prepared for those who are saved. And then he just talks about, uh, in, in, in chapter 10, I think it's in verse 25, he talks about the riches of wealth that are reserved uh, for, uh, for the saved. And so Paul has already developed this idea of, of God's riches that we get to participate in, that we get, that as believers are available to us. Okay? And, and so, if we think about that, God, that Paul has already talked about riches in that sense, then, and then we think about what he said about the mercy of God. And incidentally, Paul says another thing about riches very interesting in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where he talks about God who is rich in mercy, right? Remember that? Romans, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4, he talks about God being rich in mercy. So I think what Paul is, what's, what's happened here is Paul has become overwhelmed that here this, all the way through this whole story of Romans 9 through 11, the whole theme has been the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the mercy of God. And he begins to realize the depth of the well of the mercy and the kindness and the patience of God. And that this is a this is a wealth that God has. He's he's so rich. I, several weeks ago, I mentioned that I've been reading uh, labor labor theory, not because it's hard reading, because it's a very long book. I've been reading uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, and uh, and uh, it's a it's a book, bit of a slow read to me because it's a long book and it's got a lot of French names in it. Okay, and I'm terrible with French. That's over here. <laughs> That's yeah, but the, don't, don't watch. Uh, you can watch the movie; it's a great movie, but uh, the book is much better. And uh, so. 
So at any rate, but the, the thing about the story, if you're familiar with the story, the Count of Monte Cristo is very wealthy. He, he, he becomes wealthy, he believes, by the providence of God. And he's just very wealthy. And so everything he wants to do, he's able to do because he's got the resource. And we kind of wish we were like that, don't we? Okay. But he's just, he's just so extremely wealthy, unbelievably wealthy, incomprehensibly wealthy, that anything he wants to do in carrying out these projects that he's trying to carry out in affecting people's lives, he's able to do because he has this unlimited source of wealth. Okay. Well, that's just a picture of God. I'm not saying that Monte Cristo was you know, intended to be that, but, but in, for our purposes here, that's an illustration of God's mercy. It is this deep well that is infinitely deep. It cannot be exhausted. So however much mercy and kindness God shows to you and to me and to people all over the world, it doesn't begin to detract from the depth of the well of mercy. Oh, how deep are the riches of God, he says. And then he says, how deep is, or how, yeah, how deep is the wisdom of God? Now, now wisdom is that ability to know how to carry out the things we want to carry out, how to do the things we want to do, uh, how to live life. Okay? It's, it's different than knowledge, and we'll talk about knowledge in just a minute. But wisdom is, wisdom is having, having this, uh, this ability to know what to do in a given situation. We have people who are experts in various areas. Okay, we have... Hal here, he's kind of an, after 25 years or so, he's kind of an expert in teaching junior high kids, okay? And so if I had to ever teach a bunch of junior high kids something, you know, one of the things I might, I might get Hal on the phone and say, you know, Hal, how do you do this? You know, he's, kind, he's got wisdom. So if I face a situation, <laughs> if I face a situation and I want to know how to deal with them, well, I would, you know, I, I, I might call this expert who would have wisdom in how to deal with that situation. Okay, or or uh, or say I say uh, uh, some oil company came to me and said they wanted to drill an oil well in my backyard. Well, if they did, I might give Mike a call because Mike he's he's an expert in uh, in oil and gas lease law. Okay, so so he would know you know some you know so I'd be faced with and I don't know how to handle that situation. So I would call an expert. I'm a painter. Okay, and I have people who periodically call me, not because they want me to paint their house, but because they want they're faced with a situation in their house and they don't know how to deal with it. And they know that I'm, quote, an expert. And so I would know how to handle that situation. That's wisdom. Okay. But when I get outside of the realm of painting, you know, I'm I'm at a loss. Okay, okay. I'm kind of sometimes at a loss in the field of painting. Okay, but when I get outside of that loss, outside of that field, I'm at a loss. Okay, I need wisdom. But he says, what we discover about God is God has wisdom in everything because He's infinite. Oh, the depth! He has an unlimited depth of understanding of how to deal with every situation. And so, when somebody doesn't believe. God knows exactly how to deal with that situation. When somebody does believe, he knows exactly how to deal with the situation. When somebody's heart is hardened, he knows exactly how to deal with that situation. 
Okay. But God is not only has this depth of wisdom, but he has a depth of knowledge. You see, wisdom without knowledge is kind of, you know, it's, you know, it's not very effective. You've got to have the knowledge behind it, right? Okay. So, what we see with God is he's not only got this great depth of wisdom, but he's got this great depth of knowledge. And what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about God's omniscience. And remember when we when we talked about when we talked about the omniscience of God, what we discovered is is that God's knowledge does not simply mean that God having knowledge is aware of every actuality or every reality. It's much more than that. So yes, God knows everything that is. Okay? Yeah, he does that. Okay. But God also knows every potential thing. So God not only knows what is, but He knows what could be. He not only knows every potentiality, He knows every contingency. If this, then this. And God not only only knows every contingency, but He knows every conditional reality. If this is real, then this will be real. And he knows that not just about right now, but he knows it in the past infinitely and in the future infinitely. Staggers the mind, doesn't it? Okay. So there's this great mind of God. And and maybe we could use the illustration of a chess. Any of you play chess? Okay, some of you play chess, okay. Well, I played a little bit of chess. Uh, played a lot of it, actually, when I was young. But I hardly played any in many, many years. And I wasn't really outstanding good because I wasn't good at this thing about omniscience, okay. <laughs> but the thing about a chess player that's really good is before he moves, what does he think about? Or she? Pardon? Okay. He thinks about if I move this piece... What will that person do? Okay. Does he stop there? No. He goes forward another step, doesn't he? And then he goes forward another step. And the really brilliant chess players are able to go, I don't know how far forward, but they're able to go forward each step. And each step increases the possibilities exponentially, right? Okay. So a good chess player can maybe, I don't know, you know, really great one, maybe five or six steps, and I don't know how far in advance they can think, okay? But what they're doing is they're doing what we're talking about here. They're not only, they're not only grasping the, the current actuality of the lay of the chessboard, but they're considering also what are the potentials and what are the contingencies. You see, they're contemplating all of those things. If I do this, then he may or may do this. If he does this, and God not only anticipates they might, he actually knows because he's omniscient. Pretty cool, huh? It's also overwhelming. It is so deep, we can't comprehend because it's infinite. So God doesn't think five or six steps ahead of you and then figure out what he's going to do. But God, because he lives outside of time, he sees it all from eternity past to eternity future. And when we put that in the context, when we consider that in the context of the discussion of Romans 9 through 11, 
of God hardening some and showing mercy to others and then hardening these and showing mercy to these and back and forth. And He's doing it all and it's working out and creating jealousy in these. And all of this is happening in order that He might show mercy to all. It all is because God has this remarkable riches of His mercy and riches of wisdom to know exactly what would be the best way to act in any given situation. And He has knowledge. If you do this, He'll do this. If if He does this, you'll do this. He knows all of that. He just knows it. And because He has infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, He can do it all in order to show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, he says, are his judgments. And how unfathomable are his ways. Don't make a big thing out of the difference between unsearchable and unfathomable. They are two different Greek words. They're translating two different Greek words. But most commentators agree they're essentially synonymous. The idea is we can't figure it out. Human finite man can't figure this out. Okay? The judgments of God. Now, when he's talking about the judgments of God here, he's not speaking about uh, God's judicial actions regarding good and evil. Okay, But rather, he's speaking of what, what we might call God's executive decisions. <laughs> okay, it's his, his, his executive decisions as the ruler of the universe as he makes the decisions about what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. And his judgments, his executive decisions he says, are unsearchable. We can't, we can't figure them out. Because we're finite and He's infinite and He's got all this depth of riches, wisdom, and knowledge that we don't have. Okay? And, and so, so His judgments are unsearchable and He says His ways are unfathomable or unsearchable. And the idea there, of course, is that not only, not only does God, are God's executive decisions about what to do what needs to be done, not only are those incomprehensible to us because of the depth of his wisdom and knowledge, but, but the way he does it, the way he works it all out. So while he was doing all this thing of hardening and mercy and mercy and hardening and hardening and mercy, and he was doing all this, and, and it baffled us, we couldn't figure it out. Because the ways of God are unfathomable. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? The reality is that God's mind is so great, you and I as human beings can't understand it. And Paul, as he contemplates back on salvation history and what God has done so far in salvation history and what he now knows that God will do in salvation history in the future from his point of time when he's writing, and he anticipates that based on things that are revealed, he is just overwhelmed. Oh my goodness, God's mind. I can't figure it out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Oh, that's such a funny line. Who has become his counselor? When you go to a counselor, what do you do? What does the counselor do? Well, you go to a counselor, and the counselor, what they try to do is they try to figure your mind out, right? They figure out what you're thinking so that they are then in a place to advise you how you might think differently. Or how in the situation regarding which you're seeking counseling, how you might act differently. Because they look at your mind And they have some insight or some knowledge that you don't have. And they apply that insight or knowledge to you. That's why you go to a counselor, you know, whether it's a career counselor or a 
or a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist or a pastor or whatever. They, they have information and wisdom and knowledge that you don't have. And so they're going to apply it in your situation. And you're going to walk away a little smarter. All right? That's why you go to a counselor. But who can be God's counselor? You got any information God doesn't have? You know, many a time, many a time, you thought, well, if I was God, I'd do it different. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The arrogance of man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as we read these verses, then we might just kind of get this almost fatalistic view. Well, you know, God's just unknowable. You know, we might just get so overwhelmed by it. We just go, God is unknowable. But you've got to keep two things in mind. And one of them is you've got to remember that in verse 25, he talked about mystery. Remember? He said, I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery. And we talked about how Paul uses the word mystery. And when Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about something that was once hidden, now revealed. Right? So, we have, we have the the idea of mystery. And so we begin to see that even though this is true about God's mind, what he's been saying, nevertheless, we have to remember that he's already told us that this stuff in Romans 9 through 11 is a mystery now revealed. So what we find out is even though the mind of God is unsearchable, that does not mean that there are not some things that God does not reveal. The second thing we have to remember about this idea of the unknowability of God's mind is that he declared to us, Paul declared to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Jesus Christ is made to us the wisdom of God. And so, we not only have these mysteries that are revealed, we not only have things that God has revealed about himself, but we have Jesus Christ himself. And as we contemplate him, we discover things about the mind of God. And I like to think, I was thinking about this yesterday, this is a kind of a good illustration of the peephole in your front door. How many of you have a peephole in your front door? Okay. you got a little peephole, right? Okay. And when you look through that peephole, why do you look through the peephole? Because you want to see something that's real on the other side of the door that you can't see. When you look through that peephole, do you think that you're seeing everything there is to see outside? No, you don't. You know that you're just seeing a little bit, but what you're seeing is true. It is there. Right? Well, that's what Romans 9 through 11 is, and that's what Jesus is. They are the people into the mind of God. Okay? They're just a little people, and we look at that little tiny people, and we see truth about God. You see, there's an idea that's kind of getting uh, getting some traction in certain evangelical circles that God is so unknowable we just can't know anything about Him for sure. But the reality is we can. He has revealed certain things. So although God is so great we can't know everything about Him, He has given us revelation in the mysteries revealed, but more specifically in the Christ whose advent we celebrate this week. We have seen the mind of God. Not even 
Not even a fraction of it. Just a tiny little part. But we've seen it. And what we've seen is true. And what we have seen, both in Romans 9, the mystery of Romans 9 through 11, and in the person of Christ, one thing we have seen. We've seen other things besides this. But what we've seen in this peephole of Romans 9 through 11, and what we have seen in the person of Christ, who has made to us the wisdom of God, is we have seen God's mercy. We have seen the mercy of God. That he has shut up all in disobedience in order that he might show mercy to all. And so he says, who has given to the Lord? Who has first given to the Lord that it might be given back to him? Or who has, uh, or who's been, yeah, who has, who has first given to the Lord that it might be given back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. He basically just wraps it up and he's saying, listen folks, this is all about God. <laughs> we are not the center of the story. He is. And he uses three little prepositions there to indicate that all things are from him, by him, and to him. Or from him, through him, and to him. Okay? In that he is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the reason for everything. And again, when I read that, I go, hmm. I kind of like to be the center of the story. Or at least the kind of important part of the story, you know. But I discovered that I was made by Him and I was sustained through Him and that I live for Him. And that might get a little intimidating and scary until I remember what it is that provoked all of this praise. What is it? It's that God in all of His dealings deals because his heart beats with mercy. 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 And so finally, his great praise at the end is to God be the glory forever. And so forever and ever, folks, forever and ever, we are going to be praising the depth of the riches of God's mercy, of the depth of His wisdom, of the depth of His knowledge. And the fact that His mind is unsearchable to us is not a scary thing. Because we have seen through the people. And the one thing God made sure we saw through that people is that He is a God of mercy who would show mercy to all. If that's true about God, to quote Francis Schaeffer, how shall we then live? You see, when we look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we forget it's connected to Romans 11.32. When Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by what? The mercies of God. So there's no break between 11 and 12. He's just moving, okay? Given this, that God is this great God of mercy and through the people of Romans 9 through 11 and through the people of the person of Jesus Christ whose advent we celebrate this week. Through that people, we have discovered God's mercy and based on that mercy, how shall we then live? Okay? Well, I need to run off and get ready for the Christmas musical and 
Uh, you all were going to spend some time in prayer yet. We haven't done that. Hal had to slip out. Uh, could you lead the class in prayer? Okay, great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let me get out of here.